0: on digging deeper into biblical, biblical concepts, we end with the kingdom of God. And it's a nebulous concept. It's something that, unfortunately, for much of the believers of God, and Christendom especially, is not explicitly spelled out. There's no place in Scripture that says definitively the kingdom of God is A, B, and C, and it will look like D, E, and F, And you will get there and be rewarded by this, this, and this. Instead, it is an evolving concept. It emerges over the course of the disclosure of Scripture. And so in the beginning, the kingdom of God looks like the Garden of Eden. It is a place where God's creation is good and recognized by God as such. It is a place where humankind live in peace and are invited to literally walk with our God and be in right relationship and have conversations and explore the fullness of relationship in that way. But unfortunately, we destroy that. We make it impossible to continue in that way, and so humankind are sent out into the world, and there a new concept emerges. After the exodus out of Egypt and freedom from bondage of slavery there, God starts to tell God's people that the kingdom looks like the promised land, It's a place where all can find sanctuary and safety. It's a place where God's people are invited to live under the prosperity and the reign of God as our king. And there they can finally have peace and joy. And all of their cares will be provided for a land flowing with milk and honey. But again, humankind got in the way of that vision and decided that, yes, it's all good and fine to have God as our God and king, but wouldn't it be nice if we had an actual human king? Because after all, that's what all of our neighbors have, and we have to keep up with the Edomites. And so they turn from what the promised land should have been. The kingdom of God once more has to shift in how it's understood. And so after that time period, the prophets whether we consider them to be of minor or major length and book, all of the prophets start to speak about a place where God's justice is tangible, where it is lived out, and people no longer have to live in fear in shame and in suffering because all of God's people are suddenly beginning to manifest not only the right relationship between themselves and God, but with each other. That suddenly the relationship isn't just vertical, but it expands outward horizontally and all people are loved and cared for. And they can discover the presence of God in each other and live in peace and joy in that way. And it is under this model, which was not yet fully enacted, that Christ comes to us in Jesus of Nazareth. And when we switch over to the New Testament, Jesus starts to tell parables and give metaphors about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God looks like this. The kingdom of God is where these things happen. And over and over again, he's expressing to us that the kingdom of God is where God reigns, not only as our God and king, but in our hearts. And that our actions and the way we live our lives express the kingdom here. Too often people misinterpreted what he was saying as if the kingdom of God was some far-off place that maybe one day we'll see. Who knows? People over time started to think maybe that was just metaphor and there really is no kingdom of God. It's this kind of ideal thing that may or may not be actualized. And then we come to Paul. And Paul is the kind of person that nobody expected to take up the cross. Paul is the kind of person that didn't have anything to gain by worldly standards by becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And yet our scriptures tell us that not only was he a follower, not only was he a believer and a disciple, but he was an apostle. Paul had everything before Christ came into his life. He was a Roman citizen of the most powerful empire in that sphere of the world. And he was a Pharisaic Jew raised to be a Pharisee, respected among his Jewish kinsfolk. He knew his Torah. He knew the law. When he spoke, there was power and authority, and people cared about his opinion. And so as the time went on and Jesus began to bring about this concept of the church and these followers, Paul saw this and thought, this is not the Torah. This is not who we are called to be. And he began a life of persecuting these new Christians. No one, no one expected that Christ would come to him, that the risen Christ would encounter him on the road and transform not only his day, but his life and his entire trajectory and make him one of the most defining disciples that the world has ever known of Jesus Christ. He became this champion Everything that he had said before was suddenly turned on its head, and he started to call people into this relationship with Jesus Christ to build the kingdom all over the Roman Empire. He began to travel all over, and supporting himself with his tent ministry, actually making tents, he was a tent maker, he didn't, you know, have tents and have revivals, But he supported himself, and he went around preaching and teaching and informing people about Jesus Christ. And hearts were turned, and communities began to be established, and these would become the churches for whom we have letters and epistles in the New Testament. And as he's doing this, not even the remaining 11 in Jerusalem can believe it. This can't be. This is some kind of trickery here. There's no way that that guy is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was there when they stoned Stephen. This guy is suddenly for us? I don't believe it. They didn't believe it. He actually had to go to Jerusalem to account for himself and give his testimony as if he needed to prove that he was righteous to them. And to make matters worse, the remaining 11 apostles were in Jerusalem trying to convert Jews. And here is Paul messing around with Gentiles those people. And they were offended that suddenly the kingdom looked like this place where Gentiles are in. One of the things that the Jews had loved so much was it was a place where they could finally be free and alone and together. They didn't have to worry about everybody else in the world constantly invading them and making them vassals and making them feel less than. This was supposed to be our kingdom, they said. You can't go invite those people in. They eat pork. They wear mixed cotton blends. And we all know that's the work of the devil. And so, again, the Spirit, through someone like Paul, was pushing against what we thought we knew about the kingdom of God. This will continue all the way through the book of Revelation, where again, new images and metaphors and imagery are applied to our understanding. What is it that we're seeing? Is it literally a place where streets are paved with gold? I have no idea. If God's into that color scheme, that's God's business. However, the message is not the color. The message is that everything in the kingdom reflects God. God's light permeates everything. Nothing dark, deadly, sick, sinful, can exist in the kingdom that was the message not that we would get all caught up on gilding everything in gold but instead we are being asked in paul's dying declaration romans is the last letter that paul wrote that we can authenticate before he was dead before he was persecuted and martyred in rome for his beliefs and his ministry to jesus christ And this letter becomes then his dying declaration. That's why it's his longest letter. He's got to get it all out. He goes back in the letter and he starts to cite things that he wrote to the Corinthian church. He starts to expand upon concepts that had been pieced together in all of his ministry. Because now he has to say it all for his voice is about to be silenced until the kingdom really does come. And one of the things that he feels very strongly about conveying in the name of Jesus Christ is that judgment does not belong to us. We live in a judgmental world. We live in a world where we like to weigh in and vote and like, dislike. We like to have our opinion manifest and known, and if we're quite honest with ourselves, respected. And yet Paul is saying, you're missing the point. If you think it's about judging someone and you being righteous and them being guilty, then you have missed what the kingdom truly is. He actually, in in chapter 14, begins by saying this, Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Can you believe that there was a time where Christians thought that they should quarrel with each other over opinions? I can't imagine why anybody would think that would be a reality with over 64,000 denominations in the world. But one of the things that was really dividing the kingdom at that time, that was really splintering Christian communities, was above all things, eating. Eating was driving a wedge in the beginnings of the church. There were those who were eating only vegetables, And the critique that came down was, why are you a vegetarian? Good Jews have to eat lamb at least once a year for the Passover. It's a biblical mandate. You can't be a vegetarian. But then the critique that came from the vegetarians was, I don't want to eat unclean meat, so if I avoid any meat, I can't eat unclean meat. And so they're starting to have these struggles with, well, come on, you should just know what clean meat is. It's in the Torah many, many times. And then the critique that came back is, but we're not Jews. I don't know that. And I live in a world that is Gentile. And so there's unclean meat everywhere. I should just play it safe and not make God angry. And they're actually having arguments that are splitting the church over what they're going to eat. Have you ever had that in your household? I want Chinese food. I want to go to Crozet Pizza. So instead, Paul was saying to them, To really be a disciple of Jesus Christ means that we seek to build the kingdom in everything, including our relationships. The kingdom of God is a relational existence. It means that we are seeking to be not only in right relationship with our God, because we understand that we are cleansed by the blood of the cross, but that we seek to be in right relationship with others. And that's the part that really rubs in the church. Because it's a lot easier to pick a sphere of influence, a church to worship in, where we all look the same, we all talk the same, we all have the same beliefs, and we all agree on how we're going to do things like communion. Oh wait, we might still be having arguments about how we eat. Paul was saying that it is more important not for us to judge one another, but to live sacrificially. And oftentimes that's taken to mean we're going to have a stewardship sermon. We probably need a stewardship sermon, but that's not where I'm going today. Instead, I want us to focus on the fact that Paul reaches into the depths of his Judaic past and he pulls out Isaiah for those who are committed to the law. And he quotes Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. The kingdom is a place of unending worship. Everyone in the kingdom understands that God is God. Everyone in the kingdom worships and adores our Lord, and every single person utters God's name with praise. We are no longer divided by our worship. We are no longer divided by our theology and our doctrine and how we understand the Lord. For once in all existence, all humankind will stand together and kneel as one. And all of these things that have splintered denominations into other denominations and into churches and into congregations, all of these things will be washed away, and we will be together as one. Does that mean that we lose our individuality? Does that mean that suddenly we are just this identical mold of one another? I don't think so. I think God likes diversity and plurality. I think a God who designed a world with this many different types of grass— is in to divergence. How many different types of butterfly are there? Birds of the air, breeds of dog. There are all these different things that show us that God is okay with difference. God is so all right with finding unity among the many that God has revealed God's self to us in three distinct persons of the Trinity. If God really thought that diversity was a bad thing, then we would still be only using God the Father. But instead, God the Father wasn't resonating with everybody. There were people that couldn't quite grasp that. And so God the Son came to us. And just when we thought that was it, God the Holy Spirit has empowered all. And so the kingdom shifts yet again. We think we know, and then God decides to do something new. And the kingdom is always being built wherever Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, decide to live selflessly and sacrificially. To lay aside what makes us comfortable, what makes us nostalgic, what makes us feel right at home and be a little discontent so that others can find their place here. Making space is the subversive story of the birth of Jesus that our Savior was born in a barn because there was no room for his family. They were cast aside. They were left in her hour of need to give birth in a barn because those others of their family, those others of their people, didn't want to step aside and make some room. And the church is called to this continually. Paul is leading, not only with the Roman church, but all who would hear his words, to know that at some point, we who are already blessed to have encountered God's grace, to know God's love, and to take our rightful place as children of God, have a divine duty to help others find those gifts. That we are called to embrace exactly what he says. When he says to us, That the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Where the kingdom is built, people discover that they can be forgiven, loved, and free. That is righteousness. They discover that people who are so different and who under any other circumstances might find themselves in contention, in conflict, and even at war can be united in the kingdom. And when we're tempted to simply thrust the kingdom off as some future reality, Jesus reminds us every year at Christmas, the kingdom first began to come at my birth. And for 33 years, I worked it into existence for you. And then the God of heaven and earth, embodied in human form, decided to hand it over to 12 frail mortal, sinful, flighty, forgetful apostles and entrust one of the greatest gifts in all the world to people that he knew would betray him, would walk away and deny him, who would abandon him in his time of need, who would refuse to believe the truth of his resurrection, but ultimately could find redemption, and therefore continue the work in a new way. Jesus continuously entrusts the kingdom into care of people just like that. For we are people just like that. We are not of the church because we are perfect and flawless. We are not of the church because we are privileged and others are cursed. We are of the church because we have been fortunate enough to hear the gospel truth and take it internally and believe that we can be made clean. And if we stop there, we call a halt to kingdom building. Jesus redeems us that we might pass that redemption on. And in a world where we feel the desire to judge, Jesus says, I've got that. Leave that to me. Not one of us have to worry about deciding whether another human being is going to heaven or hell. Is that truly a heavy burden that any of us would like to shoulder? Would you like to make that eternal decision and worry that you were wrong, that you didn't have all the facts, that you don't understand what was going on within the mind and with the heart and in the spirit? Instead, let us do as Christ says and leave that to Jesus. We have been freed from that burden. We have been liberated from the need, the sinful inclination to judge one as good or bad, right or wrong, in or out. Our job, according to an apostle of Jesus Christ is to remove obstacles and stumbling blocks, to make straight the path to the Lord, and to ensure that we fling wide the gates so that all may enter into the kingdom to come. If we start acting as gatekeepers, then Christ says, I will judge you by the standard by which you keep others out. And the wonderful thing is that none of us woke up this morning Mistaking ourselves for Jesus Christ. Well, before I say that, did anybody wake up thinking they're Jesus this morning? If you did, I'm going to get a lot of water and we're going to test it. But instead, you woke up this morning and you came into the house of God. And God has invited you to leave all your anger and your judgment, your prejudice, your discrimination, your hatred, your sin at this altar. Leave it here. And in the space, the all-consuming darkness, having been liberated from you, grow love and light, righteousness, peace, and joy. Don't worry about what's going on inside that person or inside this person. God says, I've got that. Focus on making space in you so that I may thrive through you. And if we do that, then the kingdom will be built. We're getting ready to launch a new worship service for children. And there are plenty of people that have all kinds of critiques for that. And I will hear them tomorrow. But when we have been wrestling with the idea that we are constantly called to build the kingdom, we started to ask ourselves, together as the worship team and the leadership team, all the way up to the administrative board of our church, who is it? that can be most radically affected by another worship service? Who is it that can encounter God in a radically new way that will help us to truly build a kingdom here in Crozet for Jesus Christ? And then Jesus' words convicted us. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. And we could have conversations, as the early church did, about, well, is that really hindering them by making them come to traditional worship or making them come to contemporary worship? They can't come to those without their parents, can they? If their parents are a stumbling block, what happens to those children? So through the prompting of the Spirit, we created a space where the parents are no longer barriers or obstacles if they are willing to bring children in their pajamas and let us feed them and sing with them and teach them the stories of the Bible, then we can overcome yet one more obstacle. And we think creatively when we build the kingdom. If suddenly it gets tight to the right, then we will build to the left. If suddenly things are getting rather crowded here on the ground, we shall go up. We start to think about the world in new ways because we will not be limited by what we see or feel or hear. Instead, we know that there is no limits for the kingdom. We serve a God of limitless love, unparalleled grace, not just grace sufficient, but grace abundant. We serve a God who will not be hemmed in or hewed. We serve a God who refuses to live in a box, but instead says, I am the Lord of all the heavens and the earth. Even time cannot encapsulate me. And our job is to strive for a kingdom that is that big, that bold, and that open. And in order to do that, we are going to have to get uncomfortable. And that's the part that the original apostles and every disciple since has had to wrestle with. Am I willing to get uncomfortable for the sake of another person? If I really like eating meat, am I willing to go vegetarian so that this person doesn't have to worry and fear that they are breaking God's will? Am I willing to not go somewhere for a party if it's going to cause someone else to stumble? Do we really want to serve all carbs to diabetics? If someone's eating a low-salt diet, do we really want to serve salted pretzels? If someone struggles with addiction, do we really want to serve that? These are the questions that the kingdom wrestles with. Because if in any way we become a stumbling block to another, Paul warns us that we have stopped walking in love. It's certainly not the love of God. It becomes more of the love of our preferences and our wants. And so we live sacrificially. We are willing to give things up for a time. We are willing to step aside and make space for people. We are willing to tolerate some things. Now, some of you are going to be very glad when you come here next week and all of this is gone. You have tolerated it for two months. And I thank you for that. Because when I've had the conversations with the children, I said, do you like the dinosaurs? And they go, yeah. They're like, they should stay here all the time. I said, I don't think that's going to go over very well. But the fact that adults in this church were willing to handle this for a season, We're willing to put up with a T-Rex eating all of our altos. You did that. And the children learned that we are willing to endure for their sake. What greater message can the body of Christ speak to the next generation? That we are willing to do things because we love you. We are willing to do things so that you may find joy in the church. We are willing to be at peace even in the midst of inner turmoil and aesthetic war. Because at the end of the day, if just one child feels like they can call the church their home, have we not succeeded? This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ building the kingdom. But we are not just called to do that for an hour on Sunday. We are called to do this every single day of our lives. And some of us will do this through our giving. Some of us will do this through our gifts of leadership in the church. Some of us will do this by our work on the ground floor in missions and ministries. Some of us will do this by simply not speaking negatively. By restraining and refraining, we will allow for people to thrive and grow and come and see and be welcomed here. And there is no way to know what our role is today unless we seek to be in right relationship with God. So that we can hear what God is asking for us this day so that we can respond to the movement of the Spirit. And so when we are very tempted to enact our own will, that peace of God that is given freely to all who desire to receive the Holy Spirit can go, hold on a second, I've got this. Let me show you what I can do. That's what the apostles had to learn. Every disciple of Jesus Christ from the day of his resurrection to this day have had to struggle with what that means. We are not the first generation, and we will not be the last. Because already the kingdom is starting to take form in Crozet. It is already a place where people recognize that here it does not matter what you have done in the past. Here you are forgiven, loved, and free. And if we are willing to preach that with our lives, as well as our words and our ministry of hospitality then people will come to realize that the kingdom truly has been inaugurated with the coming of Christ and that every time we manifest Christ here in Crozet, the kingdom becomes a little more real, a little more safe for them to explore, and a little more welcoming for those who feel shunned and cast aside and think to themselves, surely I can't be there. Paul would be very pleased and happy to know that his words have not fallen on deaf ears, but instead there are Christians across the globe who are willing to try to set aside judgment and embrace the path of love. May that be our legacy in Crozet, not just today or next week, but until Christ comes and puts the capstone on the kingdom. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one now and forever. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.